This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 74, June 28, 1984. One of the uh, interesting things about recent scholarship is the interest in the family. Not all this interest is as good as uh, we would like it to be, but a number of scholars have dedicated themselves in recent years to a study of the family and its culture in Western Europe and America. One such recent book is by an historian, an Englishman, Jack Goody, The Development of the Family and Marriage in America, published by Cambridge University Press in 1983. This uh, study is one that I don't agree with. I do believe it will have more than a little influence because scholarly periodicals have thus far reviewed it rather favorably. The thesis, of course, of this book is definitely not Christian. He feels that the early church regulated the rules of marriage so that wealth would be channeled away from the family and into the church. As a result, the church became, Goody holds, the inheritor of vast tracts of property by the alienation of family rights. He is able to find, I think, one or two quotations from church fathers which indicate that it is better to give to the church than to your heirs. However, apart from that, his evidence is this. In Leviticus, there are rules prohibiting marriage to very close kin. Now, what Goody deals with is the fact that these rules, which very strictly limited marriage to uh, certain areas uh, and said that uh, close kinsmen could not be married, were extended by the medieval church so that instead of prohibiting marriage to very close family members, it was extended to cousins to the even seventh degree. Now, there's no question that this was done. You can still see, I am told, on uh, the pillars of some churches in England, uh, statements to the effect, thou shalt not marry thy grandmother, thou shalt not marry uh, your first, second, third, fourth cousin, and so on. Well, there was a good reason for this. Now, one reason for prohibiting marriage to uh, near relatives on the level of one's parents or grandparents was simply this. There was a great temptation to do so in order to gain property, to consolidate property. And, of course, 
marriages were very commonly contracted in antiquity and in various parts of the world today in terms of property, not romantic love. So the prohibition of the church there was a very obvious one. But what about prohibiting the marriage of cousins to various degrees? There were local variations, but basically the church throughout Western Europe forbade marriages to a considerable degree removed up until the past century. Now, of course, in the process of uh, developing his thesis, Goody has some interesting uh, data. He calls attention to the fact that in France, primogeniture, as elsewhere, came in in order to keep a hold on property, to keep it from being broken up among heirs. To quote, for example, the pol uh, policy of noble uh, families in northern France was to entrust only one couple in each house with the task of procreation. The sons of the Lord of Ards were unable to marry, for the bed of the house was not yet vacant. Younger brothers were condemned to be bachelors unless they humiliated themselves by marrying an heiress and moving into her house, as was the case with Baldwin. The policy of primogeniture that emerged in the middle of the 11th century when a stop was put to the extension of domains by the legalized pillage of church estates meant that only the eldest son could marry, for the others could no longer be provided with land acquired by force. As a consequence, the younger sons formed themselves into turbulent bands who were bound together by the chivalric ideal, by the impossibility of marriage, and by the practice of courtly love, the game of love that was the expression of profound hostility to marriage. This situation was generated by the existence of two separate and fundamentally hostile groups within high society. Unquote. No question, I think, of the truth of that. He also deals with the fact that uh, many Catholic monarchs uh, were quite ready to seize the property of the religious orders and so on. Now, uh, another fact which is of interest is that in the medieval era there were a great many widows. There was a greater longevity of women, and as a result, property tended to accumulate in the hands of women. Nothing new under the sun. Well, at any rate, these widows were faced with enormous pressures, whether they were 40 years old or 80 and 90. They had all kinds of suitors who were ready, indeed, even to kidnap them, to marry them, because of the property. As a result, many of these widows who had no desire to remarry sought refuge in a convent. Accordingly, they gave a portion of their estate to the church, and the rest was held 
for the family. At the same time, while there was a great deal of land that was technically in the ownership of the church, the reality was very different because the church didn't always have the lands it ostensibly owned. For example, in dealing with uh, southern France, in the ninth century, according to Goody, church property increased from 21 to 40 percent. Now, that sounds very high, and it sounds as though the church uh, did own a great deal of Europe. But the reality was quite different because the church was often given lands by lords without receiving the lands. In other words, what the lord would do would be to alienate the land from the king's taxation and from various uh, levies of men and of goods by the king by stating simply that uh, this land was being given to the church with certain financial rights. Uh, sometimes it would be no more than a tithe. Other times the ability to build on that land. So the land seemingly was the church's. But for example, as Goody himself admits in the 11th century, the church of St. Mary in Huntington passed through six owners in one generation, indicating speculation in real estate, unquote. Now that's interesting. Here is a church, and six different lords have possession of it in one century. Now who owned it? Scholars will take something like that and classify it as church-owned, when in reality the church merely had some rights in the land, limited rights. The tithe right was theirs anyway, but the whole device was a, a one whereby the lords exploited uh, some, uh, a situation in order to gain freedom from the crown. But now to return to Goody's basic thesis, which I said I disagreed with. Goody's thesis was that the church regulated the rules of marriage so that wealth could be channeled away from the family and into the church. Well, since you could give the land to your children, that was never interfered with. And it was simply now that you could not marry close relatives. How did that keep people from giving the land to their kin? Moreover, the rules of marriage, which were much stricter than biblical rules, were 
established by the church for very good reasons. The church knew they were not in terms of scripture. The church knew they were stricter than the Levitical laws. Well, what was the reason for them? It has been so long since those rules have had any validity in our culture that uh, we have lost any awareness of the reasons for them. Well, I come from a culture that is uh, a very old one and that had similar rules. Rules in terms of which my father grew up because he lived in the isolated high country of the Caucasus Mountains on the mountain next to Ararat. There were very strict rules governing marriage and the degrees with, when, with which husband and wife could be related, not unlike those that governed medieval Europe, governed the Catholic Church, governed the Lutheran Church, governed the Church of England, and governed many another church for many, many centuries. The reason was genetic. Churchmen were not fools. They recognized as they looked at a culture, a village culture, people closely knit, staying in one place, rarely going any great distance that too much intermarriage within that community would in a very few generations make everyone a very close relative so that the genetic pool would be very limited. Now in my father's uh, community, the rules required that there be a full genetic history to the seventh generation, very much as in medieval Europe. And the reasons were known by everyone to prevent any kind of concentration that would lead to birth defects. That was clearly stated. Now, it was known by everyone. It was never written down in the rules, but people knew that. Thomas Sowell, in discussing the various immigrant groups to the United States, has some interesting comments along these lines in dealing with the Jewish communities of Central and Eastern Europe. Because they were village communities with very, very little uh, traffic between the various villages, very little intermarriage, there were a great many genetic defects in these villages. The first generation of immigrants to the United States from the Jewish communities of Central and Eastern Europe had a great many birth defects. But these disappeared in time. Within two generations, and very often within one, they disappeared in the United States. Because here they were thrown in with countless other peoples, and you did not have the same close 
intermarriage. To take another example, the royal families of Europe really destroyed themselves and made monarchy obsolete because the kings were increasingly mentally incompetent. King George III of England, for example, spent a good deal of his reign mentally incompetent. He was the product of at least three generations of cousin marriages. And before that, a great many generations of marrying related nobility. As a result, power passed from the hands of the kings of Europe to their counselors, and they became less and less relevant because they were less and less mentally competent. Another great family of Europe that uh, hurt itself deeply with not as long a history was the House of Rothschild. The Rothschilds married cousins continuously to help keep power in their group. Now very few of the Rothschilds are competent to exercise power because of this excessive inbreeding. As a result, what Goody does not deal with at all is this kind of knowledge that is not documentary knowledge. And scholars go to documents. Documents are the main source they normally use. And the results are very unfortunate. Well, now to go on to another item also related to the subject of families and family culture. In Lawrence Stone, The Family, Sex, and Marriage in England, 1500 to 1800, published by Harper and Row in 1977. Stone, in dealing with the era of Charles II, the Restoration after the Puritan regime, has an excellent analysis of one of the most important plays in the history of the English stage, a very important play, one which if you ever took uh, history of English drama at the university, you very definitely read Witcherly's The Country Wife. This is what he said. It was almost inevitable that the trend towards greater emotional and sexual freedom for elite women in the late 17th century should give rise for a while to a good deal of overt misogyny, as expressed in popular male fantasies. Thus, one of the most successful plays of the period was Witcherly's The Country Wife whose hero or anti-hero was that insatiable adulterer, Horner. But Horner was a prisoner of sex. He derived no sensual pleasure from his conquests, only sadistic satisfaction at the seduction and then betrayal of his victims. His gratification came from their private humiliation and public ruin. That for thirty years fashionable audiences 
should have found this sexual cruelty so attractive to see upon the stage, indicates some of the tensions and anxieties aroused by the first tentative steps toward the greater liberation of women in the late 17th century, unquote. Well, his comment is excellent, except that instead of steps towards the liberation of women, what was taking place after 1660 was exactly the reverse. But liberalism is very prone to seeing things not in terms of, say, economic facts and day-by-day uh, -day realities, but in terms of paper documents. We have a very recent book published in, I believe, 1984, yes, by the Bob's Merrill Company in Indianapolis and in New York, Sweet Suffering, Woman as Victim, by Natalie Shainess, S-H-A-I-N-E-S-S-M-D. Uh, Dr. Shainess is a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. And it is uh, very much in the psychoanalytic tradition. Her thesis is, of course, that our culture makes women masochistic. And she goes through and deals at great length with the subject. She is convinced, of course, that the Bible is a male chauvinist book and has a great deal to say about the horrors of that document. The sad fact is that uh, she is a highly intelligent and capable woman. She fails to see masochism in a religious context, nor does she see it in terms of even her own psychoanalytic tradition. It's very curious that in her text and in her bibliography, there is no mention of Theodore Reich, R-E-I-K, a Freudian, a psychoanalyst, and the really great expert on masochism. Reich's book it was titled Masochism in Modern Man, and his thesis of masochism as self-punishment is a very, very thoughtful one because he brings it so close to a Christian context while being definitely not religious. What we have to recognize is that if men and women are not in Christ and do not know the atonement of Christ, they will seek self-atonement either through sadism, laying the sins upon someone else and punishing them, or taking them upon oneself, masochism. In a forthcoming study of the doctrine of the atonement, I have a great deal uh, to say on that particular subject. Well, now on to another subject. I'd like to uh, discuss now a book that uh, is a delight. It's an old book out of print, 
although it was reprinted a few years back by the University of Nebraska Press. But it was uh, published, I believe, first in 1903. It was written by a cowboy using an assumed name in the book, but describing his own experiences. It was after Owen Wister's The Virginian appeared, and he decided to give a more honest account of what life as a cowboy was like. The author came from an Irish immigrant family that had settled in the South. His father joined the Confederate Army. They were very poor, they were an immigrant family, and they awaited when the news of Lee's surrender came for the return of the head of the household. And then this, he says, though he was long delayed, when at last he did come riding home on a swallow-marked brown mule, he was a conquering hero to us children. We had never owned a horse, and he assured us that the animal was his own, and by turns set us on the tired mule's back. He explained to mother and us children how, though he was an infantryman, he came into possession of the animal. Now, however, with my mature years and knowledge of brands, I regret to state that the mule had not been condemned and was in the U.S. brand. A story which Priest, the rebel, once told me throws some light on the matter. He asserted that all good soldiers would steal. Can you take the city of St. Louis, was asked of General Price. I don't know as I can take it, replied the general to his consulting superiors, but if you give me Louisiana troops, I'll agree to steal it. Unquote. The uh, book is uh, full of delightful stories, campfire stories, as they worked on the trail. As a young boy still in his teens, he joined with a group that was moving a thousand head of cattle from Mexico up to Montana to be delivered to the U.S. Army for Indian use. On the trail, as they were talking and uh, visiting before turning in for the night, many an interesting story came forth. I worked for a cowman once, said Bull, and they told it on him that he lost $20,000 the night he was married. How? Gambling, I inquired. Nope. The woman he married claimed to be worth $20,000, and she never had a cent. <laughs> well, there are some interesting bits about uh, the cost of things, then. Here is a verse from a song. Sure, it's one cent for coffee and two cents for bread, three for a steak, and five for a bed. Those were the hotel prices 
in the southwest in those days. Now, Dodge City, of course, was a lot higher. That was a high-priced place. And, but, and there you had to get a room uh, with a nice clean bed in it, plenty of soap, water, and towels for two bits. High-priced. The family, I think I said, moved to Texas and became enthusiastic Texans, although he does say this about Texans, and I quote, Cutting these logs, said Joe Stallings, as he mopped the sweat from his brow. Reminds me of what the Tennessee girl who married a Texan wrote home to her sister. Texas, so she wrote, is a good place for men and dogs, but it's hell on women and oxen. It is interesting that the people on the trail talk about the old states back in the south and in the north and how over-civilized and overpopulated it is too much to suit them. One of the interesting stories because trailing on the herd was not an easy thing. There were all kinds of mishaps, and on one of them, their foreman, Wade Scholar, drowned when they were fording a stream with the cattle. This was very, very difficult because, as his friend was to say later, and let me read from the book. Meanwhile, Campbell took possession of the drowned foreman's watch, six-shooter, purse, and papers. The watch was as good as ruined, but the leather holder had shrunk and securely had held the gun from being lost in the river. On the arrival of the tarpaulin, the body was laid upon it, and four mounted men, taking the four corners of the sheet, wrapped them on the pommels of their saddles and started for our wagon. When the corpse had been lowered to the ground at our camp, a look of inquiry passed from face to face which seemed to ask, What next? But the inquiry was answered a moment later by Black Jim, uh, Black Jim Campbell, the friend of the dead man. Memory may have dimmed the lesser details of that Sunday morning on the North Platte, for over two decades have since gone. But his words and manliness have lived not only in my memory, but in the memory of every other survivor of those present. This accident set he in perfect composure as he gazed into the calm, still face of his dead friend will impose on me a very sad duty. I expect to meet his mother some day. She will want to know everything. I must tell her the truth, and I'd hate to tell her we buried him like a dog, for she's a Christian woman. And what it makes it all the harder, I know that this is the third boy she has lost by drowning. Some of you may not have understood him, but among those papers which you saw me take from his pockets was a letter from his mother in which she warned him to guard against just what has happened. 
Situated as we are, I'm going to ask you all to help me give him a, the best burial we can. No doubt it will be crude, but it will be some solace to her to know we did the best we could. Well, they immediately selected a burial place and began to dig a grave on a nearby grassy mound where there were two other graves. Then he goes on, there was not a man among us who was hypocrite enough to attempt to conduct a Christian burial service. But when the subject came up, McCann said as he came down the river the evening before, he noticed an immigrant train of about 30 wagons going into camp at a grove about five miles up the river. In a conversation which he had had with one of the party, he learned they expected to rest over Sunday. Their respect for the Sabbath day caused Campbell to suggest that there might be someone in the emigrant camp who could conduct a Christian burial, and he at once mounted his horse and rode away to learn. In preparing the body for its last resting place, we were badly handicapped, but by tearing a new wagon sheet into strips about a foot in width and wrapping the body, we gave it a humble beer in the shade of our wagon, pending the arrival of the coffin. The features were so ashened by having been submerged in the river for over eighteen hours that we wrapped the face also. As we preferred to remember Wade's scholars, we had seen him the day before, strong, healthy, and buoyant. During the interim, awaiting the return of Campbell from the immigrant camp and of the wagon, we sat around in groups and discussed the incident. There was a sense of guilt expressed by a number of our outfit over their hasty decision regarding the courage of the dead man. When we understood that two of his brothers had met a similar fate in Red River within the past five years. Every guilty thought or hasty word spoken came back to us with tenfold weight, uh, telling him, why don't you go ahead and do it yourself? Priest and Campbell returned together. The former reported having secured a coffin which would arrive within an hour while the latter had met in the emigrant camp a superannuated minister who gladly volunteered his services. He had given the old minister such data as he had, and two of the minister's granddaughters had expressed a willingness to assist by singing at the burial services. Campbell had set the hour for four, and several conveyances would be down from the emigrant camp. The wagon arriving shortly afterward, we barely had time to lay the corpse in the coffin before the immigrants drove up. The minister was a tall, homely man with a flowing beard, which the frosts of many a winter had whitened. And as he mingled among us in the final preparations, he had a kindly word for every one. There were ten in his party. And when the coffin had been carried out to the grave, the two granddaughters of the old man opened the simple service by singing very impressively the first three verses of the Portuguese hymn. I had heard the old hymn sung often before, but the impression of the last verse 
rang in my ears for days afterwards. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. As the notes of the hymn died away, there was a few, for a few moments profound stillness, and not a move was made by anyone. The touching words of the old hymn expressed quite vividly the disaster of the previous day, and awakened in us many memories of home. For a time we were silent, while eyes unused to weeping filled with tears. I do not know how long we remained so. It may have been only for a moment. It probably was. But I do know the silence was not broken till the aged minister who stood at the head of the coffin began his discourse. We stood with uncovered heads during the service. And when the old minister addressed us, he spoke as though he might have been holding family worship. And we had been his children. He invoked heaven to comfort and sustain the mother when the news of her son's death reached her, as she would need more than human aid in that hour. He prayed that her faith might not falter, and that she might again meet and be with her loved ones forever in the great beyond. He then took up the subject of life, spoke of its brevity, its many hopes that are never realized, and the disappointments from which no prudence or foresight can shield us. He dwelt at some length on the strange mingling of sunshine and shadow that seemed to belong to every life, on the mystery everywhere, and nowhere more impressively than in ourselves. With his long, bony finger he pointed to the cold, mute form that lay in the coffin before us and said, But this, my friends, is the mystery of all mysteries. The fact that life terminated in death, he said, only emphasized its reality. That the death of our companion was not an accident, though it was sudden and unexpected. That the difficulties of life are such that it would be worse than folly in us to try to meet them in our own strength. Death, he said, might change, but it did not destroy. That the soul still lived and would live forever, that death was simply the gateway out of time into eternity. And if we were to realize the high aim of our being, we would do so by casting our burdens on him who was able and willing to carry them for us. He spoke feelingly of the great teacher, the lowly Nazarene, who also suffered and died and he concluded with an eloquent description of the blessed life, the immortality of, so of the soul, and the resurrection of the body. After the discourse was ended and a brief and earnest prayer was offered, the two young girls sang the hymn, Shall We Meet Beyond the River? The services being at an end, the coffin was lowered into the grave. Campbell thanked the old minister and his two granddaughters on their taking leave for their presence and assistance, and a number of us boys also shook hands 
with the old man at parting. There's much more that's very moving and amusing also in The Log of a Cowboy by Andy Adams. One of the interesting things, by the way, is that in those days, so many of the cowboys on the frontier were ex-Confederates. Many of them, after the war, seeing the ruins at home, simply drifted westward and became cowhands. So in that area of uh, the world then, you had some unusual people riding herd. It was the great day of cowboys because normally the cowboy is not much of a character, but in those days he was. Well, now to another book, a new one, Business Plan for America, an Entrepreneur's Manifesto by Don Gewirtz, G-E-V-I-R-T-Z, published in New York by G.P. Putnam Sons in 1984 for fifteen ninety-five. It's an exceptionally important book because the thesis of it is that uh, we are in the midst of very great and very encouraging economic transformations. What he points out is that in the last decade we are, have seen the twilight of the giants which began after World War II. And as a result uh, something else is taking its place. Let me quote, during the last 15 years, this growing anti-authoritarian streak has expressed itself in distinctly capitalist forms. While at the onset of the 1960s, new business formations stood at 180,000 per year, they increased steadily during the 1970s and reached over 600,000 a year by 1981, an unprecedented threefold increase. Uh, parenthetically, let me say that whereas the economy was much healthier in 1960 and not so healthy in 81, new businesses were being formed in greater number. At the same time, the number of self-employed persons declining for most of the nation's history also jumped dramatically from 5.1 million in 1970 to over 6.6 .6 million ten years later. Moreover, he goes on to say, between 1969 and 1976, small firms with less than 20 employees created as many as two-thirds of all the nation's new jobs. Another study based on IRS statistics states that small and medium-sized companies with under 500 employees produced as many as three-quarters of the new jobs. In marked contrast, the Fortune 500 firms 
after doubling their number of jobs between 1954 and 1970, failed to generate any new jobs and actually began reducing their domestic payrolls. As the 1980s began, this trend intensified with over 1.3 million workers laid off by giant firms that reduced their workforces to levels below those of 10 years ago. This represents a dramatic change in where Americans find their employment opportunities. Between 1965 and 1980, the number of Americans working in firms of over 500 employees dropped markedly, while those involved in smaller-scale businesses with fewer than 250 employees climbed to nearly 70% of the total workforce. Even on the industrial front, the trend has been toward smaller firms. Factory size, averaging nearly 50 employees in 1947, dropped to under 44 in 1972. During the past 10 years, as big business sharply curtailed manufacturing employees, small firms have consistently boosted their payrolls and reversed the long-standing trend towards a concentration of industrial assets. Now, I quote that because as I review this book, I want to urge you to read it because the whole book develops this thesis. There is an industrial revolution underway in this country. It is moving towards decentralization. And Don Gewurz has written one of the most important books in recent years. The calamity howlers simply don't know what is happening. Small is now profitable. And a major revolution is underway. Uh, Don Gewurz, by the way, is the co-founder of the Foothills Group of Los Angeles, which helps capitalize small and medium-sized companies. They have so far helped capitalize over 15,000 new firms. It is interesting, too, where this sort of thing is taking place. Without any question, Gewurz says, California is way out in front. Uh, for example, in high-technology electronics, it has almost four times more than Texas is its nearest rival. The state has been a leader in new business uh, formations. Between 75 and 1979, the rate of business starts was double the national average. And he goes on to develop exactly uh, what is happening. New York has a large corporate mindset, and California does not. Texas is also another good state for this type of uh, enterprise. Massachusetts is coming up fast, 
and Florida is also a very good area. There is much more here, but I urge you to read this book. Moreover, he makes this point, quoting a Japanese uh, authority, on why this development in the United States is so important. Japanese society is one big bureaucracy, one big pyramid. Here, that is in California, it's different. There's risk, but it's not gloomy all the time. You can make your own future. Well, if you want to know what's happening right now and what the shape of the future is, this is a book for you to get and read. I strongly urge you to do so. A very important book. Now on to uh, another subject very briefly. An interesting thing in uh, a book published 1979 by St. Martin's Press in New York, Jeffrey Hindley's, H-I-N-D-L-E-Y, England in the Age of Caxton. Preaching then had its problems as now, and this is interesting in that uh, he cites a notorious friar, William Russell, warden of the London Grave Friars, in the 1420s, he was delighting congregations at Stamford and Lincolnshire with the message that tithes were contrary to the law of God. Later in London, he somewhat modified this to the unexceptionable comment that the payment of tithes was not enjoined by divine law. Possibly, Russell was thought a little unbalanced for he also held it was permissible for a religious to have carnal knowledge of a woman. But the anti-tithe campaign had a considerable response. In the province of Canterbury, there were many who were striving to withdraw such tithes, many who already had withdrawn them, and it is feared that more will be hindered from payment to the injury of curates and particularly vicars. Nowhere was the opposition to tithes more persistent than in the city of London, though its basis was simply a dislike of paying any tax and was not specifically anti-clerical. End of quote. I cite that because we forget that in every age there have been preachers who like to preach what will go over well with people. Since the days of the Old Testament, people are ready to say, uh, preach unto us or speak unto us smooth things. In other words, give us an easy religion, one that does not ask much of us. Now, having said this, I want to cite something from still another work, Charles T. Wood, The Quest for Eternity, Medieval Manners and Morals, a book uh, published by Anchor Books Doubleday in Garden City, New York in uh, 1971. And one of the interesting points uh, that he does make is the extent to which 
so much that was good in the medieval era was the work of laymen. And even when monasteries were founded and uh, various orders of monks did remarkable things, the impetus very often came from some lay patron who called for such a thing being done, encouraged it, and exercised supervision over it. He says, in, let me cite, among other things, nearly every monastery, for example, nearly every monastery, owed its foundation or reformation not to the zeal of monks, but rather to the interest and encouragement of some lay patron, such as Duke William the Sixth of Aquitaine, who granted Cooney's original charter. From the universality of this phenomenon, the extent to which the laity had succeeded in seizing control of the church is apparent. Thus, it was only when the laity took charge of the church that it was healthy and strong. Whenever, both in the med medieval era and in the modern era, men have left the church, Catholic or Protestant, to the clergy, the church has gone downhill. Only when the laity have said that they want a strong church, they want a living, active, zealous faith of the clergy, by and large, begun to mend their ways and uh, change things. So, if you want to see things different, don't bellyache about the clergy. Take over. If the laymen don't run the church, if they don't encourage the right kind of pastor and uh, discourage the wrong, they're going to get exactly what in too many cases they have already. Well, uh, just a brief note about an, another book, not one that is general reading, The New Empire of Diocletian and Constantine by Timothy D. Barnes, published in 82 by Harvard University Press. It's simply a list of the emperors and usurpers, their associates, their places of residence, the Imperial College, the residences and journeys, the ordinary councils, the prefects of the city of Rome, the praetorian prefects, the administrators of diocesan uh, uh, areas and governors of provinces, and so on. So it's more like a dictionary, but it was interesting to read because the controversial areas, as far as scholars are concerned, but... Uh, Historians have thrown doubt on only the areas, or mainly the areas, that are Christian. For example, several writers, he says, allege, as I've read more than once, that Helena, the mother of Constantine and wife of Constantius, was merely his mistress or concubine. 
but the evidence, he says, is clear to the contrary. Moreover, there is a controversy over the date of Constantine's birth. But again, he says, the evidence is clear. Now, there's much more that is a matter of controversy concerning Constantine, but it is interesting that historians challenge the accuracy of everything connected with the Christian aspect of Western history. Why not Diocletian? Why no controversy about uh, his wife or mother or place of residence or birth date? Well, Diocletian was a pagan. So, it's an interesting uh, note on the way historians operate. Well, our time is up. I uh, did not get to a couple of things that I regarded as very important. Well, next time perhaps, I'd like to read to you portions of something that... Uh, Otto Scott is working on, which I regard as intensely interesting. But I, I can squeeze this in uh, into the remaining time. It's for, from the current July 1984 Harpers. It tells us that uh, things are not much different in England than they are here because some of the causes that get public funds are babies against the bomb, English collective of prostitutes, Camden policing the police, world disarmament campaign, Southall Black Sisters, Rastafarian Advisory Center, Marx Memorial Library, Chile Democratico, Liberation Movement for Colonial Freedom, London Gay Teenage Group, Public Accountability for Community Enlightenment, Abyssinian Society, Sea Red Women's Workshop, Gay Bereavement Project, Gay London Police Monitoring Project, Campaign to Curb Police Powers, and so on. All of those groups get uh, public funding of one sort or another in England. So what else is new? <laughs> Every country in the world is busy doing this sort of thing. Well, thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you in two weeks, or rather speaking again with you. I read always with you in mind. I enjoy reading. I'm reading continuously and with great pleasure. And whenever I encounter something that uh, I think you would enjoy hearing, it gives me a great deal of delight, and I hope it gives you a like pleasure. Thank you.